Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 367 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the worlds of AEW and NXT. AEW is fast on the way to full gear, less than 10 days remaining at the taping of this podcast until its final pay-per-view of the year. And NXT is quickly approaching NXT deadline one month from now in December, which will not only be its final premium live event of the entire year, but the last one for WWE as a company also. So plenty to talk about on today's show with both brands moving towards major events, certainly AEW's a little bit closer, a little bit more intense. So we're going to be breaking down everything across both of those brands on today's show. But it would not be an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast if I did not begin by reminding you that this show is So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take an extra moment out of your life. Leave a five-star written review as well. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you subscribe, and tell them why they should do the same. The five-star ratings are important. The reviews help us immensely by convincing people to give Getting Over a shot. And as always, if you leave a five-star written review, we will read it right here on the podcast. Now, what we don't normally do is read reviews that are not five stars because what's really the point in doing that? And what we never do is read one-star reviews on this podcast because guess what? We really don't get them. And I'm not saying that to Barry Horowitz and put myself over. I'm just saying most people, if they're going to leave a bad rating, they probably don't leave a review with it, right? That's generally how it works. You have something good to say, you are effusive in your praise. And if you don't, unless you hate the show, perhaps... Uh, you're just going to leave the star and kind of move on with your life. But we did get a one-star review that I wanted to read on this show, mostly because I was just confused. And I just felt like it deserved more attention for my confusion to be uh, accepted by our audience uh, of getting overheads as a whole. So this came in on November 2nd, um, and the headline is Day One Fan. So presumably this is from someone who has listened from the very start of the show, probably the podcast I was on prior, uh, and has now heard, you know, with 300 and what I say, 67 episodes of this podcast, probably heard this show for 300 times, I would say, at a minimum, if not every single episode, right? Said, day one fan, you should stop watching Rampage. The half-hearted, disinterested, bad attitude is a turnoff, and I would enjoy the show much more if you left Rampage out. Otherwise, great show. So even if this person, whether you agree that that's a legitimate point or not, They're saying it's a great show, but there's that one thing they don't like. Why would you give us a one-star review if you're a day one fan? Wouldn't that be like a four-star review or a three-star, if anything? So I don't get the one-star. Hopefully, whoever this is, maybe consider, I don't know, changing it to something that makes a little bit more sense. But regarding the comment, uh, you should stop watching Rampage, half-hearted, disinterested. It's been a terrible show. So I say it's a terrible show. Guess what? There was like a calendar year on this podcast where SmackDown was a terrible show. And you know what happened? We would come on every week and say, man, Raw, there were a lot of really interesting elements on Raw. SmackDown, once again, was awful. 
And then we would tell you why. And that's exactly what I do here with Rampage. Now, in a surprising turn of events, this week's Rampage actually wasn't that bad. I thought it was improved coming out of last week. There were some interesting elements on there that we're going to discuss a little bit later in the show. But for the vast majority of the last couple of months, Rampage has been an awful hour of professional wrestling. But I also can't not cover it because we're here to talk about everything that happens in AEW. And despite it being bad for the majority of weeks recently, there are still elements of the show that tie into Dynamite and pay-per-view. So I'm not going to not cover it, but I'm also not going to lie to you. I'm not going to come on the podcast and say, yeah, Rampage was really good because it, it hasn't been. It's been a very bad show as of late. Now, again, this week, things changed. And I'm happy to say when things changed. Uh, is that going to continue? Will the go-home show next week be awesome? I don't know. It's probably equally likely that it's good and that it's bad. But, you know, it's usually a taped show. This week was live. Most of them are usually pretty bad. This week's was better. And I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel every single time. And I appreciate uh, one of our other listeners, uh, D2 Cowboy, who posted a new review for us, five-star review on Monday. You watch Rampage! Exclamation point Because I did tweet about this. He goes, you watch Rampage! Exclamation point. Amazing! Exclamation point. You deserve this five-star review for having to watch Rampage. Also, you guys do tremendous work. I don't miss a show, even when you're talking about Rampage. And five stars from him. So thank you for that. Uh, whoever did leave the one-star review, maybe consider revising, hopefully, uh, my comments here. Put that in a better perspective. Either way, I appreciate you listening and commenting. I just, I, I appreciate constructive criticism. You don't have to try to ding the show with a bad review to do it. You can just tweet me and say, hey, you should stop watching Rampage if you don't like it so much. And I would have given you the exact same answer via Twitter uh, that I would have right here. We do have two more five-star reviews that came in. I'm going to save those for Tuesday's show because they're mostly WWE related. And this was just topical because it was about AEW. But I appreciate all of you who listen to the show, who have been day one and listened to us from the very beginning, yourself included, Mr. One Star Review. And I appreciate certainly uh, everyone who continues to leave those ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because they do legitimately help the show. One other reminder before we get into the meat of it today, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You guys know what you're going to get there. Episode drops, commentary during shows, news, gifts, videos, all that good stuff. Please follow us at Getting Overcast and tell your friends to follow us at Getting Overcast. Now, as always, when we have a show with multiple brands on it, we remind you off the top that there are timestamps in our episode description. So if you want to bounce to AEW, you want to bounce to NXT, check the description. You can find out what time to go to. But for this episode in particular, we are going to kick off with AEW, mostly because it is so close to full gear. A lot of what they're doing is super important for the company leading into a pay-per-view. I will say though, just as a little bit of a tease for NXT, I loved NXT on Tuesday night. And I've been critical of what we've gotten from NXT recently. It wasn't a perfect show by any means, don't get me wrong, but it was a very good wrestling television show. We'll talk about that later. We're going to start with AEW, as I just said. And to also repeat myself coming out of the intro here, Rampage was much improved from last week. It still had problems, but it was actually watchable. And I saw probably, whereas most weeks I'm fast forwarding through it best I possibly can, I saw the vast majority of this show, you know, without any fast forwarding, it was very good uh, from that aspect that again, it was an hour long show that I didn't say, why am I watching this? And that's really all I'm asking for is something that's watchable. Dynamite, now they're in this weird zone where it seems to be suffering from like the same thing every week in that there's a couple great matches, 
a couple good promos, and then just a lot of shit in between. And all the while, you have Excalibur and Tony Schiavone carrying on about AEW being the greatest promotion with the best wrestling and the best wrestlers and blah, blah, blah. So this week of Dynamite, way better than last week. I was certainly down last week. But if you're going to compare it to the three weeks that preceded last week's show, it just didn't hold the candle to those. Those were all great episodes. Some of the best Dynamites that I think AEW's probably ever put on. Uh, But last week was way down. This week, kind of getting back to a good zone. Certainly sets up next week the go-home show for Full Gear to be a really solid one that I'm definitely excited about. So let's get into everything that happened across Dynamite and Rampage. On Dynamite, there was another promo video uh, package type of deal for the Elite, just a random assortment of clips from their careers in AEW. But there was gear imagery uh, throughout the entire video, which made it seem as if they will either return at Full Gear or for Full Gear. Now, apparently Turner has asked AEW to have all of its returns and debuts happen on TV for ratings purposes. So I found that it's strange for them to still be teasing their return with only one week left, really just the Dynamite go-home before Full Gear, because they're certainly not going to debut them or return them, I should say, on Rampage. That's not going to happen. And given there's a ready-made trios match here, Elite versus Death Triangle for the titles, and that should definitely be on the Full Gear card, saving a return for a go-home show, that's just a strange idea because you're not actually building the story or feud in front of an audience. Now, you could say, well, the AEW audience is smart. They know everything that happened behind the scenes. They know Death Triangle only got the titles because they were stripped from the elite because of what happened with Brawl Out. Sure, but again, you're talking about a million people who watch your show on a weekly basis. And sure, the vast majority of them, or at least the majority of them probably know, but there's also tons of people who don't. And still, to this day, have no idea why the Elite were off TV in the first place, why they were stripped for the titles, why CM Punk disappeared, because AEW has never mentioned it. So I just, you know, if you want to do a tease for a week or two and then bring them back, cool. But now we're on three weeks, there's a go-home show left. Like you're running out of time and to do it now only with the go-home show left, it is going to, if they do debut, or I keep saying debut, if they do return next week, then this match is going to suffer from what many AEW matches have leading into pay-per-views, which is a lack of build. And it's always frustrating when that happens, especially given AEW only does four, if you include Forbidden Door, five pay-per-views a year. So there's plenty of time to have all these builds, and yet matches still get rushed onto cards. So let's find out next week if the Elite come back. If they do, we'll see if they put a uh, match immediately on the card. Next week will be our AEW full gear Ultimate preview, so expect Vintage Chris Vanini here on the show for that. But it's just frustrating the way they're doing this. It's like they're almost trying to completely replicate White Rabbit, except it's far less interesting, and there's no mystery involved with the entire thing. So, you know, we'll see. At this point, it's wait and see. We got to see what they actually do, whether next week on the go home or at full gear. Uh, A clip of MJF appearing on the podcast, Pardon My Take, aired on Dynamite with MJF saying doctors suggested he not be on the road with AEW and simply focus on the full gear match against John Moxley. He said this is the most important match in the history of the sport because it could crown the guy who brings wrestling to new heights. Then he named every legend from WWE putting himself in that class saying all he needs to do to reach that level is 
is to have a long title reign after beating Mox. Then he talked a ton of shit about Mox, but he came back and said he respects his work ethic in becoming the best wrestler in the game. MJF said he can make everyone talk about wrestling again. He also said all of his big matches to this point in AEW have been overshadowed by a neck tattoo, Matt Hardy's fall, Chris Jericho falling off the cage, and a press conference. And look, it was a great promo, as usual, from MJF. I feel like this would have gotten out if he was already on PMT. So either this was a setup just to do this, you know, promo, or the interview hasn't aired yet and it's going to next week. So that's certainly possible. Either way, he nailed it like always. And MJF, again, he did a great job threading the line between heel and face coming off as a tweener. It's at the point where he's going to get cheered over Mox in the match or at least when he wins the title off of Mox. The problem is going to be living up to what he's saying here once he is actually champion. Because the truth is, he's gonna be world champion of AEW, which just does not have the reach that WWE does. So for him to you know, bring wrestling back into the mainstream and make it more popular than it's been in a long time, I'm not saying he can't do it. We here on this podcast, and certainly the vast majority of people seem to believe that MJF is the future of the business, But at some point, you have to be in a larger pond to have the effect that he is saying he will have. I I believe he wants to have that effect. The question is, can he have that effect? I certainly think he is talented enough. But the question again is, is the pond of AEW, a smaller pond, will it stretch big enough to allow him to do that? That's always a question. But a killer promo, it sold MJF, it sold Mox, it sold the match, and it sold Full Gear all at the same time. That is when you talk about promos and the best to do it in the game right now. That right there is expert level stuff. Well, I like it a lot, Bailey, but that's not really the sound drop I was going for. I like it. I like it a lot. That's the one, Macho Man right there. As I said, awesome stuff from MJF. Uh, At sport underscore caller wrote in, he goes, so PMT and Barstool aside, Was that a promo of the year consideration for MJF or does not being in front of the crowd disqualify it? I like the integrated approach of it and strictly from a written speech perspective, it was almost flawless. Um, So no, it does not get disqualified from not being in front of a crowd because I think uh, Edge this year and Edge going back in the pandemic days, uh, a couple of those promos that he cut, those weren't in front of crowds either and both of those were great. Um, so no, uh, being not being in front of a crowd does not disqualify it. But I think MJF's had better promos this year on his own, probably like three or four of them, maybe even more, but it was damn good. That's one of the things with MJF though. Every promo that he cuts seems like an all-timer because he puts 100% into them, but he also does it all the time. So it's very difficult to judge one against another. That's not saying that it's a problem that he's cutting good promos. It's just, how do you parse one from the other? Uh, Regarding your other comments, no issue with PMT here. Those are some good dudes. Their affiliation aside, I mean, I'm not gonna get into that. Uh, But this approach to the promo, it was unique, definitely. I appreciated the effort by AEW to do something different for a change. And in this case, it absolutely worked. Now, later, Stokely Hathaway was like walking down a boardwalk for some taped, you know, package saying MJF, his best friend, forgot where he came from and was dick riding Mox. Stokes said he would do it all on his own and he would see Max in hell. You know, he can obviously speak extremely well from a promo standpoint. I appreciated that they're telling the story of their relationship, given the storyline 
fell apart, whether that was planned or not. Now, whether this actually results in anything remains to be seen. But if MJF does win the title and he's a tweener or a face champion, theoretically, the firm could be a heel side against him. The problem is they don't really have a believable title challenger on the roster. And I include Ethan Page in that group. I like him a lot, but I don't believe for a second that he would actually be AEW champion. That makes all of this booking interesting because one would expect Page and Ricky Starks to be in the finals of this Eliminator tournament. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. So there's really two options. The MJF Stoke stuff is all a swerve and the firm ultimately helps him beat Mox and win the title as it seemed like was originally planned. In that case, Stark should win the Eliminator and be his first challenger. The other option is if MJF wins as a babyface, whether he overcomes interference from the firm or not, then you have Page win the Eliminator and he's MJF's first challenger representing the firm. So it would work both ways. We have to see what they choose. Uh, Mox came out later in the show with William Regal recalling how he once picked a fight with Regal and got put in his place. He compared that situation to MJF. He took shots at MJF's fake diamond ring, clothes, and wealth, saying, unlike MJF, he's actually a millionaire who has put the company on his back multiple times. Mox also took exception to MJF calling himself the devil, saying he just didn't fit that description. He said he and Regal were rooting for MJF to reach all his goals one day, but everything else he's done to this point has been easier than what it will be like fighting Mox. Exceptional promo for Mox here. Love the storytelling aspect of it, the comparison between his rise and what MJF said. You know, it's clear that he respects MJF just like MJF respects him, but he's also not about to let himself be the one who drops the title to MJF and allows him to reach his goals. He wants that to happen outside of Mox and the BCC. What I liked most about this was that Mox was even killed the entire time. Far too often he gets like rabid and he paces around the ring and yells and it's just like repetitive. Here, he was reasonable, calm. It was just a different approach from a guy with Mox's resume. That makes the promo kind of intimidating that someone this wild and this crazy can be cool, calm, and collected just kind of saying, dude, I'm gonna rip your throat out when I see you. You're not ready for this. So I thought it was really nicely done for Mox. Great stuff from MJF. I'm not excited about Full Gear in totality, but if I was a fan and I was someone who, you know, was deciding whether I was going to order the pay-per-view, obviously for the podcast, I'm gonna do it no matter what. But if I was a fan and I was on the line, this sold me on the show. I mean, it's probably gonna be like, an 11, 12, 13 match show like they always are. But I don't really care about most of them. This main event, I want to see. And these promos from MJF and Mox sold me on it. Great job by both of them getting that done. On Rampage, Ricky Starks came out mentioning how people want him on TV. He entered himself in the AEW Championship Eliminator Tournament, saying things are crumbling in AEW and he'll hold it all on his back. Not really his best promo. It was okay. I always think it's funny that no matter the company, when someone mentions like, oh, I haven't been on TV recently, but I'm here for you, as if it like excuses their long absence, like that suddenly they're put on television. Uh, Probably better to just not mention it and just move on, right? Uh, On Dynamite, Lance Archer was shown having attacked Starks, presumably meaning he would also be in the Eliminator tournament, setting up a match between them either in the first or second round, I would assume. You know, a battle royal or a tournament is upcoming in AEW when Lance Archer, just randomly shows up again out of nowhere after having done nothing for months on end. He's a great wrestler. He has a fully formed character. I don't know what's happened with Jake Roberts, why he's not on TV anymore. Uh, They confused things, certainly, 
um, with Jake, uh, with uh, Lance Archer, I'm sorry, where he had two managers for a period of time. The whole thing was a mess. Uh, but I don't understand why he's not used more. I mean, we always mention certain people like Miro, right? That can't get on TV. But you have Lance Archer, who's certainly awesome and could definitely be a great challenger for Wardlow or Samoa Joe or all these other people. And he's just not used. And it just does not make any sense. On Dynamite, we had an Eliminator match, the first one, Eddie Kingston against Ethan Page. Stoke distracted as Kingston tapped out Page. Ortiz chased Stoke away, giving Page an opening to kick Kingston twice. This gave another opening for a really slow setup, Ego's Edge off the top rope with Ethan Page getting the win. Uh, Page was definitely the right winner. Kingston taking an L when he's hardly on TV these days, super frustrating for fans of his like I am. Plus, I thought he was kind of in the middle of this like character change coming out of the situation with Sammy Guevara where he choked him out and he wouldn't let go. It felt like they were doing something with him and then he just comes out and loses and they haven't developed that at all. So that's really frustrating. So yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. That was just a frustration I had. And then on Dynamite, this was really confusing. Roosh told Ten and Dark Order that he would give him the first title match once he wins the Eliminator Tournament and beats Mox for the title. So I don't know why he was offering that, but it also looks like they're giving up the contract storyline now, which means they should really just completely drop whatever they're doing between Roosh and Ten, because there's nothing really for them to be arguing about or mad at each other over. So just let it go and move on. This was just confusing to me. Maybe I missed something, but at least my interpretation of it was half the storyline, basically. On Rampage, Brian Danielson and Claudio Castanoli were interviewed. Claudio stumbled through his promo, saying he draws the line at Chris Jericho attacking non-wrestlers. They both demanded one more opportunity at the Ring of Honor title, given they are also former champions. Regal told Jericho to make his choice. And then Jericho later, he's like, well, I guess the BCC doesn't actually like one another. So I want to give you both a title opportunity so you can fight each other. But I'm not stupid. So I'm going to put Sammy Guevara in the match also so he has my back. So his idea is that once Brian and Claudio lay each other out, which for some reason they're going to fight each other instead of Jericho and Sammy, once they do that, Sammy will just do the right thing and lay down for Jericho. So Sammy was interviewed later and he promised that the ROH title would stay with the JAS, obviously casting doubt in Jericho's expectation that he would just lay down for him. And then he challenged Brian to a two out of three falls match on Dynamite. So like, Heels are allowed to be stupid, right? But creating a fatal four-way for your own title, giving yourself a 25% chance at retention when no one is forcing you to do that, that's monumentally dumb. And Chris Jericho, you know, is not, he can be a dumb heel, I guess, in some respects, but he's a legend. I mean, he's, he's you know, the guy that the rest of the roster should be looking up to. He's the Ocho now, Right. He's El Champion or La Champion or whatever the hell that was. I don't know why I forgot. Um, He should be smarter than this and above all of this. And he made himself a fatal four-way match. Like, I know he explained it. I'm not saying he didn't explain it. But the explanation was nonsensical. And the match is probably going to bang. I mean, you got Jericho, Claudio, Brian, and Sammy. That's going to be great. Don't get me wrong. I just can't help but thinking there were far better bookings than this for full gear. This is another situation where it feels like AEW is just like, oh, all of these big names on our roster don't have a match for the show. Let's just shove them all into one. And to me, that's a huge disappointment because the booking just should have been Jericho and Claudio or Jericho and Brian. And maybe you change the title in that spot. Instead, it's convoluted as hell. And this is where we're at. 
So we'll move to Dynamite, where we had Danielson and Guevara in the two out of three falls match as promoted on Rampage. Sammy came out, and when I say this guy got no reaction, he got no reaction from the crowd upon entering. He sacrificed the first fall on purpose, taking a DQ by throwing a chair at Brian's head and hitting him with a microphone. This was a good callback to that Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle. Um, I think it was an Iron Man match that they did something similar back in the day. I thought it was a callback. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But to me, that's what it reminded me of, at least. After the commercial break, Sammy hit Brian with the GTH, got the pin to even the falls 1-1. I think he hit Danielson in the eyebrow, like hard way on the knee, uh, because Brian started bleeding and it didn't seem to be a blade. Uh, Sammy botched a leap to the top rope. Brian missed a flying headbutt and got put in a crossface. Then Ty Mello got ejected. Sammy did a shooting star press to the outside that was super impressive, but he also like missed Brian completely. Uh, Danielson then caught him flying inside with the label lock. Guevara reached the ropes. Brian hit a poison rana. Sammy countered the psycho knee into a Boston Crab. Danielson later hit the psycho knee, but didn't cover for some reason, even though that's his finisher. Instead, he went for stomps when Sammy propelled himself off the canvas and onto the ropes for a moonsault backflip DDT. Danielson then blocked the senton bomb with his knees, hit the hammer elbows, and won two to one with a butterfly style label lock. This was a super splashy main event. Don't get me wrong. Like the only negative is the two of three fall stipulation. It was just completely unnecessary. All they needed to do was just have a long match with many of the same elements. And even if they wanted to do the attack part for the DQ, they could have just done that before the bell, which would have given explanation to why Sammy was fighting with Brian so well throughout the rest of the match. It just felt like even in a situation where Danielson won, they felt like they needed to give Guevara a win for really no other reason other than, I guess, explaining why he's getting an ROH title shot that he shouldn't otherwise have. So other than that, though, this banged from start to finish. I was mostly disappointed with the wrestling on Dynamite until we got to this match, which was not only the best thing on the show, but tied for best TV match of the week to this point at four stars and an A minus. Now, let me say one more thing about Sammy before we move on. Aside from his controversies and all his bullshit off the screen, there have been few people that have appreciated his talent on the screen more than I. But his constant no-selling, just to like jump into another splashy move, it's taking away from his insane athleticism and ability. Great wrestlers are not just spot monkeys. Go watch Ricochet or Will Ospreay as example of guys who can do literally anything that is asked of them athletically, yet they also sell their asses off. Sammy is badly missing that aspect of his game. And while people still scream stuff like, see, this is why they keep putting Sammy on TV because he can put on bangers like this. You got to realize this became completely forgettable as a match the moment it ended. And that's why I'm at four stars and an A minus while others would probably be higher because you can't have someone no selling moves just to go do their next flashy move and tell me that it's a great match. I can be entertained, but that doesn't mean it's great. So again, four stars. A minus, I have no doubt that others are going to be higher. They just, in my opinion, don't take some of this stuff into consideration. And they're veterans of the grading industry in terms of match grades and ratings. So you would think that they do take these things into consideration. We'll see. Maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse and others will agree with my grade there. On Rampage, Tony Storm uh, was backstage. She got to speak for the first time in weeks, the interim AEW Women's Champion. Storm asked why Jamie Hayter, who she hung out with, during the pandemic when she was kind of stuck and not able to, to go back to the United Kingdom, uh, while why she suddenly became a bully and why she's allowing herself to be manipulated 
by Britt Baker. It was a mediocre promo at best, but it at least gave us a little bit extra depth to their feud, even if it was about like 25 or 30 seconds of her talking. So then we had Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter against Madison Rain and Sky Blue. This was on Rampage. Only Baker and Hayter got an entrance. Rain dodged a stomp from Baker and hit an insiguri. Hayter then powered out of a crucifix and hit, hit a ripcord lariat to get the win in seven minutes. After the bell, Baker started cutting a promo about Storm. When Storm entered, knocked out Rebel with one punch, threw Baker into the barricade, and brawled with Hayter. With Hayter in like half of a Texas Cloverleaf, Baker drilled Storm in the head with the title and then gave the title to Hayter to kind of say, hey, this is what you can win. Now, half of this match was during commercial break. Baker cutting the promo on Storm instead of Hayter, the actual challenger, tells you all you need to know going into their full gear match. First, we hardly get the champion cutting promos. Now, the challenger can't even speak for herself. The match was nothing. On Dynamite, we had Britt Baker and Soraya in the face-to-face that was... um, Promised really last week, but finally delivered here. Soraya said, unfortunately for Britt, she's cleared to wrestle. She got a muted ovation from like half a house for that announcement. Baker said she's built the AEW house to make it a place where wrestlers know superstars like Soraya Page wanted to move. Saying superstars got an ooh from the crowd because, you know, WWE reference. Uh, Baker repeated that Soraya walked into her house saying she doesn't take walk-ins, so bitch, make an appointment. And I actually loved that line. That was great from Britt. Uh, Soraya said Britt was handed her spot and was fed a bunch of QT Marshall's trainees, so she has no idea what it takes to be a superstar, calling Britt an ungrateful bitch. So two bitches in one uh, promo. And I say that in terms of the word being used, not, of course, the women themselves. Uh, Soraya talked about being publicly humiliated in front of millions of people, and battling her drug addiction in public. Soraya said she was handing Britt another opportunity to make her career because it's gonna be Soraya's comeback match at full gear. Baker tried to attack, but Paige hit Rampage to end the segment. So the clearance bit for me, look, it was anticlimactic, not just for myself, but clearly for people in attendance because we've already seen her get physical and she's been in AEW for weeks upon weeks at this point. That should have been announced that she's cleared in week one or week two when she made a return, when they were in front of a bigger crowd so they could get a huge pop. There was no one here in Boston for this show. And they saved this moment for two weeks before uh, Full Gear. It's just, it's nonsensical to me. Uh, Now they did try hard to do a work shoot promo battle and to their credit, it mostly landed. Some definitely, I think, overrated the promo battle, like people online that are praising it. I assume Paige is going to come in and beat Britt, just like CM Punk beat Darby Allen. We're going to see at full gear, of course. More than anything, I just hope she's actually healthy. The clearances are real. I saw she tweeted a picture of it. I looked the place up. Seems legit. Uh, So I hope everything's 100% with her and she gets out of it okay. That's what I care about more than anything else. So later on Dynamite, we got Hater against Sky Blue. Storm was in Sky's corner. Blue hit a code red. She tried to cast Adora, but Hater countered it into a short arm lariat for the win. Hater stomped Sky twice after the bell until Storm ran her out of the ring, and that was it. This got seven minutes. More than half of it was during commercial break. Now, the women did get two full segments on Dynamite, so that was nice for a change, but it hardly felt like any improvement when the women's match was treated the same as always in a typical spot, and again, We're coming off of Rampage 
where the interim champion finally got 25, 30 seconds to speak. We haven't heard from the challenger. She even got the match in the first place by them just standing across from each other, one on the ramp, one in the ring, and Storm holding up the title. So that was the last thing that we saw. Again, Storm hasn't cut promos until we just got one on Rampage. Hater doesn't speak at all, and yet she's challenging for the interim women's championship. It's just, I'm sorry, it's not working. This is her crap! On Dynamite, the acclaimed and FTR fought Swerve in Our Glory and Gun Club. This opened the show. Max Caster absolutely crushed his rap, one of his best in a long time. Before the bell, Billy Gunn ran down past both face teams to attack Swerve. It was a really hot moment to kind of start the show. He then got brought backstage so the match could actually start. The acclaimed and FTR scissored, except not only did it happen during commercial break, so we didn't hear the pop, the director also cut away and completely missed the shot. There was no tagging whatsoever in this match. The guns hit Big Rig for a near fall. Swerve did did a tornado outside into a pile. Dax Harwood then did a superplex outside into the same pile. Back inside, FTR hit Big Rig, acclaimed hit mic drop, and they got the win. A good action in spots. It was odd to not develop Swerve and Keith Lee at all during this, given they had the opportunity, or at least the acclaimed Swerve in Our Glory story, given they're going to have a title match at full gear. It just kind of happened and then ended, and that was it. Like it, Again, you're on the go home. Like You got two weeks left. You're st- supposed to be building stuff for your pay-per-view, doing an eight-man where those two teams don't interact before or after the match. It doesn't really do anything for you. On Dynamite, Jungle Boy cut a promo saying Christian Cage doesn't get to decide when their feud is over, which is why he attacked Luchasaurus last week. He said he had a challenge to lay out, but rather than do it in that moment, he would make the challenge on Rampage. The kid is live on Dynamite on TBS with a microphone in front of him. Why are you delaying your challenge two days for no reason? Like make that make sense. It just doesn't. No one is tuning into Rampage to specifically see what Jungle Boy has to say. We know he's going to challenge Luchasaurus to a match. We know it's going to be for full gear. And it's probably fair to assume there's going to be a stipulation attached to it. So it's a tease that's just completely worthless. On Rampage, there was an All-Atlantic Championship match. Orange Cassidy against Katsuori Shibata. AEW gave us a video package ahead of the match. And I got excited when I saw the video package start because I figured, hey, maybe they're listening and they're actually going to explain Shibata to their larger audience. Instead, I am not exaggerating when I say this. It was 10 seconds long. So why even do it in the first place? After six minutes, Shibata did Cassidy's gimmick of you know lightly kicking. Then he no-sold some PKs. Then he did an abdominal stretch and an octopus hold. Orange came back with Stun Dog Millionaire. Shibata hit a Death Valley driver and a second one was countered into a second Stun Dog Millionaire. Then Shibata was nearly dropped on his head before beach break. Shibata no-sold the orange punch. Cassidy countered a running move with a second orange punch and got the win. Now, what stood out for me here was really just the uniqueness of seeing Shibata wrestle after all this time. He definitely had some ring rust, but you could see the flashes of greatness there. In terms of the match quality, it was good. Like the grade would be a B, 3.25 or 3.5 stars. There was no buildup. False finishes would have made a lot more sense than just straight up no-selling. Cassidy never seemed like he was in danger and him doing the same thing every single match is really starting to wear on me. It's wearing thin. The real standout here was Mike Tyson on commentary. It was cool to hear him be so knowledgeable and so excited about wrestling and Shibata and the fact that he was able to participate in the show. That was great. My surprise 
was they promoted Mike Tyson on commentary for Rampage, not for this match. So I thought Tyson was going to be there the whole show. And that would have been awesome, except he was only there for this match. So it's it's a criticism because I wanted more. I want more of the good thing, right? I'm sure that they'll do it again with Tyson. It seems like he'll remain involved with AEW here and there. Maybe they'll go back to it with Chris Jericho at some point. Um, but yeah, you know, it was cool seeing Shibata. Other than that, again, totally forgettable match. On Dynamite, Jay Lethal's crew uh, announced or, or, or explained, I guess, to the audience that they paid QT Marshall for Two Dimes' help last week. Orange Cassidy, Dan Housen, and Best Friends then showed up, and Orange accepted an All-Atlantic title challenge for Lee Moriarty before it was even offered. Then, like, the segment flashed because I guess they cut something out. It was really odd. Best Friends called the Lethal Crew scumbags, and that set up a match. So to understand this properly, Two Dimes was rented by the factory when they could have just added him to their group or added someone else to their group. That makes no sense. Why are they renting a guy from the factory? So then we have Trent Beretta against Lethal on Dynamite. Trent hit a great avalanche half and half suplex. Danhausen and Satnam Singh wound up on the apron. Danhausen was about to curse him when Sanjay Dutt like turned him around. So he punched Dutt in the balls. Then Singh headbutted him. Lethal caught Trent with lethal injection for the win off the distraction. After the match, Jeff Jarrett entered, calling himself the last outlaw. He said he'd explain his deal, and then he put over the other three guys. He said Singh was not a make-believe monster wearing red skinny jeans, put over by the banana-nosed circus, and he's referring to Braun Strowman, Triple H, and WWE, literally taking a shot at Paul Levesque's nose like it's 1999. Jarrett was in the process of putting out some challenge when he got angry that a stagehand came up and tried to wrap him up. And then he chased this guy down the ramp to the ringside area and the segment just ended. So let's think about this. He promised to explain everything and explained nothing. Another guy coming from WWE, taking a shot at WWE. I would say for no reason, he did get fired by them. So it's okay that he's angry. But in the context of this segment, it made no sense whatsoever. In fact, the crowd didn't even react to it. Now, if Singh could move like Strowman, Maybe the guy would actually fucking wrestle and just, instead of just standing there like a great value giant Gonzalez, who, by the way, moved a lot better than Singh does. This entire thing, from the taped segment to the match to the post-match, it was hot garbage. If you want to do Jarrett and Lethal against Darby Allin and Sting, cool. Tell that story. Refer back to the Ric Flair stuff, although I'm sure they don't want to mention his name, but, you know, mention that they just recently wrestled and tried to take out a legend, so they're going to do it again with Sting. Instead of doing that, this ended without anything being done, without any challenge being made, and they just announced the match via graphic, like a lower third graphic, 30 minutes later. It's going to be Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal against Darby Allin and Sting. Including last week, they had three weeks to potentially build this match and just didn't. And I'm trying to figure out what this horseshit is. I'm not saying AEW has jumped the shark, but bringing in Jarrett is the type of move that could be looked upon as a jump the shark moment, if that makes sense. It's a horrible idea putting him on TV. Both the segments have been terrible. Both promos have been awful. Jarrett literally came out and was like, you might be wondering why I'm working with these guys, which is the question we asked last week. So he was like, well, 
I hired Lethal one time, Dutt is a super genius, and Singh is a Netflix special because he was once in the NBA briefly. And I'm the last outlaw, so that's why. That's not an explanation. He literally said, let me explain this to, to you, and then didn't explain. It's straight up asinine that AEW is giving this guy a pay-per-view match after two weeks in the company, but there's major talent backstage or even guys like Archer who can't get on screen, but to randomly explain their inclusion in an eliminator match out of nowhere. I'm repeating myself from last week, but it's true. This felt like a shitty TNA or end of business WCW style booking. It is just awful in every conceivable way. Zero point zero. Zero. I am pissed off. I'm pissed to the highest level of pissivity. On Rampage, Warjo fought Gates of Agony. Um, Wardlow did the Powerbomb Symphony for the win. Powerhouse Hobbs entered. Wardlow pushed Samoa Joe out of the way to like cut a promo on him. So Joe just stared daggers in the back of his head. Wardlow talked trash to Hobbs while he stayed on the stage. But then Joe like seemed to get over it and he patted Wardlow on the stomach. So I wasn't really sure what that was about. There was no takeaway because really nothing happened. So we moved to Dynamite where we had a TNT title match, Wardlow against Ari Davari. Ari offered to buy the TNT title or something. Joe came out with Wardlow. Wardlow handed Ari the title to like play into the offer. He quickly attacked him with a wind-up lariat and the Powerbomb Symphony's first squash win. He then called out Powerhouse Hobbs saying at least he's a suitable opponent for a change. Then he said he would take every title in the company. As Hobbs started walking down, Joe turned heel and drilled Wardlow in the back of his head with the ROH TV title and put him to sleep. The director completely missed the belt shot. Between uh, the main roster WWE Raw on Monday, AEW on Wednesday, and I think there was even a moment in NXT Tuesday, the directors this week are just, they're having a bad week. They have missed so many key moments, it's ridiculous. Now, if the booking here by AEW is to unify the TNT and ROH TV titles, that would be a welcome development. And you could say that this was well done and it makes all the sense in the world. If not, I'm not really sure what the point is of having Wardlow and Joe feud when Hobbs is already there as a challenger for Wardlow. If they do like a big meaty triple threat with both titles on the line for a unification at full gear, I'm all in for it. Even if the build with Wardlow and Joe has been a little bit sloppy, but the match would absolutely bang. Otherwise, this heel turn just kind of seems worthless and out of place. Also kind of super rushed, given the first sense that we got that Joe might have a little bit of an issue with Wardlow just happened five days earlier, after weeks and weeks of them having each other's back and, you know, running in for each other and all that type of stuff. So the heel turn was rough no matter the booking, but if a unification match is the plan, then the end goal makes sense. The path just could have been better. And lastly, on Dynamite, Nyla Rose versus... Jade Cargill was made official for full gear with Jade's TBS title on the line. Backstage, Jade said she was sick of Nyla and would handle her ass on Rampage. It's the right booking for the ongoing story. I can't say I'm notably excited about it, but Nyla can go, so maybe we'll get a good Jade match as opposed to most of the bad Jade matches that we get. I have certainly no designs on her dropping the strap, so it does look like we're going to have three women's matches at full gear. Jade Cargill, Nyla Rose, title change doesn't make sense. Tony Storm, Jamie Hayter. You would say that a title change could make sense because Hayter is so hot, like in terms of the audience response to her right now, but there's no build. There's no enthusiasm behind her specifically winning the title. So this probably should be a spot where she doesn't win. And then you have 
uh, Soraya against Britt Baker. And it looks like there's a spot there where Soraya is probably going to win. So, you know, they all seem pretty predictable, but, you know, we'll see if AEW swerves us and something different happens at full gear. That's it for AEW this week. As I said, uh, a better show, you know, both shows, uh, Rampage and Dynamite, were better than their equivalents a week ago. Dynamite, not up to the level of the three weeks prior to that, but the go-home is next week. Generally, AEW's go-home shows are strong. There's still a lot of matches that need to get built for this card, so there's a lot to kind of sink our teeth into next week. Again, next week will be the AEW Full Gear Ultimate Preview here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and more likely than not, Vintage Chris Vanini will join me to break that all down, offer our predictions for the show. Now, with AEW out of the way, let's go ahead and move to NXT. A very eventful episode, especially when it came to developing characters in the women's division. I greatly appreciated that. So let's start with the main event, which was the Women's Tag Team Championship, Caden Carter and Katana Chance against Zoe Stark and Nikita Lyons. The champions were on top early with their double team moves. Lyons rolled through Chance's flying crossbody and tossed her. Stark had a half and half suplex and a falling roundhouse kick before a really tight kick out. Uh, They had a great sequence with Chance hitting a flip over stunner. The challengers nearly ran into one another. Lyons pushed Stark aside to save her, eating stereo super kicks on her behalf. Chance then caught Stark with a tornado DDT and the champions hit their assisted elevated 450, which still doesn't have a name. Name this move, please, uh, to retain the titles in 11 minutes. Lyons handed Chance her title after the bell in a babyface moment, and Stark was about to do the same to Carter. Carter got her hands on it when Stark ripped it away and instead drilled Lyons in the face in a heel turn. She then threw the title out of the ring at the end, and she landed a last shot on Nikita Lyons to end the whole segment. This is exactly what we wanted last week. And that's fantastic because it was the perfect booking. We got a super fun match, way more straight up than I expected with Stark taking both moves in the finishing sequence. The turn was predictable, the heel turn, but hey, sometimes predictable things are good. This one was well executed and Zoe showed a lot of passion doing it. I thought it might be tough to buy her as a heel, but she really fell into it naturally. And best of all, we're finally giving Zoe Stark a personality and character. It's been missing for her up to this point. I maintain my position being a huge fan of the Casey's as a team. They are so damn entertaining to watch. They have a whole combo move set. It's refreshing that a women's tag team acts like a women's tag team. I don't really want them to drop the titles anytime soon, but at the same time, I kind of want them on the main roster as soon as possible. That's a tough thread to follow. Uh, The match was good, like I said, not great, but very good. 3.5 3.5 stars and a B. Uh, the Grayson Waller effect was the mid-show feature with Braun Breaker and Von Wagner. Breaker wore a leather jacket that looked like his dad's beware of dog gear. Uh, the first question was why Wagner gets a title shot when Carmelo Hayes does not. Mr. Stone said NXT fans never gave Wagner a legitimate chance. And Wagner said he doesn't care about popularity, just the title. The next comment said it was time for anyone to beat Braun. So Breaker said no one's going to take the title from him. Wagner said he's a second generation talent, just like Breaker but he didn't use it to get a leg up. Now that's true, but Wagner's father was not Rick Steiner. Let's just put it that way. Uh, They had a standoff with Mr. Stone talking shit behind a desk between them. Braun did a no-look slam of Stone's head on the table, which was a really cool spot. And that really just ended the segment. They just talked shit to each other. Apollo Crews later cut a taped promo from Lagos, Nigeria, telling Breaker that he heard his name 
and he still plans to take the title off of him. Cruz is over there, by the way, because WWE is doing tryouts in Africa this week, which is really cool. Now, this particular Grayson Waller effect, it was kind of rough because Wagner can't talk for shit. But putting that aside, the show is pretty great. It's a fresh and inventive concept compared to the rest of the interview segments that are just guy in the ring with a mic, right? Now, from the hard cam being focused on Waller to reading interesting questions in a talk show setup, it's just cool that we're really seeing something different. This did nothing to get me excited for the match, of course, and there's just no way Breaker drops the title to Wagner, but I am glad that they're getting that out of the way and seemingly gonna do a bigger match for NXT deadline. Uh, Nathan Frazier backstage told Axiom he's gonna be out a few more weeks after the ladder match. JD McDonough said to leave the diagnosis to an expert because they don't know anything about pain. JD guessed Frazier's injury and said Axiom wouldn't have done any better in the match. Axiom shot back how McDonough failed time and time again trying for the title, and that set up a match later in the show. So we got Axiom against McDonough. These guys were killing it until Axiom hit a step-up springboard moonsault outside, kayfabe injuring his right knee. JD obviously focused on it. Axiom got a huge hope spot, but JD put him in a Boston Crab. Axiom flipped but sold the knee. That gave McDonough an opening for a headbutt. Axiom caught a moonsault with a triangle, countered a powerbomb with a hurricanrana. The knee gave out again. Axiom countered Devil Inside with a rear naked choke and an armbar. JD came back with a knee crank, bending it all the way in half, like to the side. Axiom screamed and the referee pushed McDonough off, but didn't call the match. Axiom screamed not to stop the fight, but when medical came out, the referee then stopped it. And then after the bell, JD said it's a severe sprain, not a tear, because he's a nice guy and he knew what he was doing. JD talked more shit after the bell. He begged someone backstage to get on his level, saying he was looking at Apollo. Other than the referee breaking a hold for no reason because he didn't end the match as a consequence of it, this was exceptionally done. The wrestling was top tier. The finish was smart. It really played into Axiom's superhero gimmick as well as McDonough's sadistic streak. I've been saying it. I was really down on JD McDonough. This is now three or four weeks in a row where they're building his character way, way better than it was initially presented. This is what you're supposed to do before you give a guy a title match. They did it completely backwards. And that's why the McDonough Breaker stuff didn't hit. I mean, the matches were great from an in-ring standpoint, but that's why the storyline was so poor and we criticized it so much because McDonough, you knew what they were going for, but they didn't deliver it. They didn't explain it. They didn't develop the character. Now that the character is developed, if he was going to get a title shot, you would buy it because you're like, this is a sadistic fuck who's just taking these people out and he's injuring them, but not injuring them enough. So if he gets his hands on Breaker, who knows what he's going to do. Now that they've actually established him, it would work before they just put the cart before the horse. And that doesn't make sense. Uh, In terms of the match, you can't ask for more, really. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus, but it was headed way higher than that. This was on the way to four, 4.25 obviously the finish being what it was, it's difficult to give it a higher grade. Really quick, I also wanted to give a bonus shout out here to Booker T on commentary. It's a completely different style what Booker T is doing than what Wade Barrett was doing. And I definitely had my doubts when it was first announced, as I said on the podcast here, but he's absolutely killing it. Whether you like his style or not, Booker's enthusiasm, it's a perfect mix with a developmental product because He's a babyface actively trying to get talented wrestlers over. Before Axiom and McDonough started, he was screaming about McDonough's greatness, even though he's a heel. 
And he was saying Axiom might be the best modern masked wrestler in the game. He's all about getting people over and having fun. And that commentary style from Booker T is a great fit in NXT. To the point where when Pat McAfee comes back to SmackDown, I don't know that I would disagree with the idea of NXT being a three-man booth with Wade Barrett and Booker T. You have Wade Barrett as the heel. Booker T is the baby face putting people over. I think it would really work well. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Booker T. Obviously, you're on every show here. Uh, it's all about the five. That's that's the Booker T sound drop. But I just wanted to give you an extra shout. The Cameron Grimes, Joe Gacy feud uh, concluded to open NXT. Schism had a bit of a new look with black lights, neon lights, and the yellow masks that they're now permanently wearing. They're also wearing all black now, and Gacy was wearing trunks without a shirt, so he changed his look from what we were doing previously. Gacy was notably aggressive early until Grimes caught him with a Spanish crossbody, German suplex, flying crossbody, and poison Rana as Grimes and the referee kept getting distracted by schism throughout that entire sequence. Grimes took all the guys out with a Tope Con Hero. Ava Rain then tripped Grimes off the top rope with Gacy hitting the handspring lariat for the win. This was easily the best presentation of Schism yet. And credit where it's due, the last three weeks have been a huge improvement on what we've got from them previously. It still doesn't mean I like it, uh, but Gacy had to win this match given the numbers advantage. Grimes was the star. He got to shine and defeat. Rain got to be the X Factor as the newest member. That's all exactly the way you book something like this. I don't know what's next for Cameron Grimes. Perhaps it's a main roster call-up. He is completely ready, and there's really nothing left for him to do in NXT. He already had the North American Championship. He already challenged for the main championship and lost. So really, what is there left? I think Gacy, um, he's either a call-up you know, after Survivor Series, or possibly he makes an appearance in the Royal Rumble, and then he goes to the main roster. That is what they should be doing with him. He's done great in NXT, great run there. But for me, that's it. Unless he finds a partner and becomes a tag team, but I, there's no one obvious to slide into that role with him, nor do I think that that's the best usage of him. He really should be on the main roster in like a probably a lower mid-card role to start, eventually elevated into a mid-carder that can compete for the United States and Intercontinental Championship. So again, we'll see what happens with Grimes, uh, but he's been great. And this feud ended the way it should have, again, with the best presentation of Schism that we've probably ever had. So credit for that. I'm still never going to forgive them for killing the Grizzled Young Veterans, though. Uh, Mandy Rose and JC Jane connected on FaceTime while JC was driving and Mandy was at her apartment. Gigi Dolan has three cracked ribs in the hospital. It was confirmed during the call. Mandy invited JC over to hang out when a mall cop pulled up behind her, or so she thought. They started talking trash about the guy. It turned out to be Alba Fire, who pulled Jane out of the car laid her out on the uh, concrete and then took her spot in the driver's seat to talk trash to Mandy ahead of their title match next week. Now, I figured Alba was literally going to beat JC in the ring, but I guess the idea of injuring her works better to ensure that neither JC nor Gigi can physically be at ringside. If they're in the hospital, they're not going to be able to be there. You would think if they're stuck in a haunted mansion without a car, they're not going to be able to make it there. But still, being in a hospital that at least we know for sure they won't be able to make it there. As we said last week, the title change should have happened at Halloween Havoc, but credit where it's due, the segments of the last two weeks have been good to set up a reasoning for it being a clean one-on-one -on -one match between Mandy and Alba Fire. If Alba loses this, I mean, I, I, you call her up to the main roster, obviously, but what is there left to do with her at, at that point? And her stock would be as low as 
maybe ever at that point. So because of that, I have to believe Alba Fire will win the NXT Women's Championship next week. I should mention also, just as a fully formed prediction, Braun Breaker will retain the NXT Championship against Von Wagner. Both of those matches are happening next week. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams were back in the barbershop talking their talk about elevating the North American Championship and Melo not being pinned to, for the title, obviously during the ladder match. He put over Wesley for his run back to the top, but said he's a paper champ because he didn't beat him one-on-one. Melo said they would do a contract signing next week. So we're getting the match we expected here. I assume it's in two weeks time. Later backstage, Wesley said he'd make Melo miss. The booking has to be Wesley beating Mello one way or another. So Mello can move on and Wesley can be established as the champion. It was smart. They had Mello put Wesley over here and not just disrespect him because that would have been really bad for him to put him in a negative light as the new champion, someone that they're trying to establish. In terms of the booking going forward for this entire thing, obviously, like I just said, you have Wesley go over Mello. That frees Mello up to begin his ascent into the main event, into the title picture. And there's myriad ways that you could do it. One option, obviously, is to have Apollo Crews, an established main roster performer who is a previous Intercontinental Champion and has many other accolades on the main roster. One option is for him to beat Breaker and serve as a transitional champion. Melo could then take the title off of him at like stand and deliver on WrestleMania weekend. By doing that, you save the Braun Breaker, Carmelo Hayes feud that everyone wants for the main roster when they're eventually both up there at the same time. Years down the line, it could be you know, a major match at a major show, potentially. Um, Or you have Breaker beat Cruz and you have Breaker keep the title all the way until Royal Rumble weekend or WrestleMania weekend, and you have Hayes take the title off him at that point. So one way or another, I do think with by the time Stand and Deliver is done WrestleMania weekend, I think Carmelo Hayes is the NXT champion. The question is, how do we get there? And what is Apollo Cruz involvement in the entire thing? Another option is a triple threat match where, Hayes pins Cruz. So, I mean, there's just myriad ways that you can go with it, uh, but I am excited that it seems they're in the process of having Carmelo Hayes move on. Uh, Cora Jade talked shit to Wendy Chu, saying she stuck her nose in someone else's business and is clearly desperate to be liked and accepted because she's the lonely girl in high school wanting to hang out with the popular girls. Cora said she'd always be on the outside looking in, Wendy that is, and should think twice about messing with her. This was easily, like by a mile, Cora Jade's best promo on NXT. It was completely natural sounding. Her confidence was up and it just completely hit. Great stuff. I suspected the heel turn when it initially happened would work for her a couple months ago because it was it would allow her to develop a character and personality, but she is excelling way beyond my expectations now as a heel. It's cool to see someone develop right in front of your eyes like this, uh, this was great character development for Cora Jade. We mentioned Zoe Stark earlier, and we're going to get to a third woman before the show is out. Similar situation where they were really able to develop their character on the show. Before we get there, Brutus Creed fought Damon Kemp in a five-minute challenge. This was the result of Julius Creed beating Kemp at Halloween Havoc. With two minutes and 12 seconds left in the five minutes, Brutus grabbed a chair and just decided to beat Kemp with it, knowingly taking a disqualification rather than win the match. Then he delivered another one for good measure. After the bell, Virmahan and Sangha watched from the crow's nest. This was kind of an odd booking. Brutus getting five minutes with Kemp should have been just a no DQ brawl in the first place so we could beat his ass. And then after the five minutes ended, he should have just kept kicking his ass. That Like, that's how you book this. I don't know why you would do a five minute time limit for a blood feud. I mean, I know why it was five minutes because Kemp said you can get five minutes with me if your brother wins. But I don't know why you would do that in a 
regular match scenario and then just book him to take the DQ. Maybe you let the five minutes eclipse and Brutus is frustrated that he didn't get enough in and then he beats his ass afterward and then maybe you get a no DQ match that Brutus wins at the end of it. That's the way you book this. I just, I don't understand why they ended this feud with a disqualification with two minutes and 12 seconds left on the clock. And then they're clearly moving on to a tag team feud where you're now gonna have the Creed brothers going up against Sangha and Veer Mahan. So they're just, they pushed Kemp away completely from this. To me, it, it just doesn't make any sense from a booking standpoint. Um, so I, I will give it actually, I, I didn't have a sound drop like scheduled. I usually mark with a red mark when I need to do something, but I'm gonna come back and give it one. Because really, if you think about it, the booking of it just didn't make any sense as an end to this long-term feud that was rolling pretty well last time that we saw it. Electro Lopez fought Sol Rucka. Lopez's new theme, rough as hell, very low energy. Rucka got some like surfer graphics added to her entrance and made it look pretty decent. This was an even match. Both women got to show off a little bit. Both also looked much improved from the last time we saw them in the ring. Rucka had a nice flipping splash in the corner, but Lopez caught her with a choke sit-down powerbomb for the win. After the match, Indy Hartwell attacked Electra before they got separated. Indy later said no one is gonna make a name for themselves on her back. And in NXT, you have to take what you want and bet on yourself, and she is all in. Later backstage, Roxanne Perez like ran down Hartwell, making sure she was okay because she's been acting different lately. Indy said she should have learned not to trust anyone after the Cora feud because there are no friends in this business. This was a short, fun match, and maybe Indy's two best promos of her NXT career in consecutive segments. Hartwell's image was definitely elevated and the interaction with Perez was appropriate given Roxanne is the most pure babyface on the roster right now from the women's division. This was all exceedingly well done from the match to both of Indy's segments. And best of all, this gimmick makes total sense for her because of everything that's happened both in her career and in her kayfabe real life to this point. Every connection, every partnership, everything she's done has failed and she's left alone. And here she is saying, you can't bet on anyone else. You have to bet on yourself. I love that. It's also very like DIY-esque, which may potentially, if she does make her way to the main roster, they could maybe even do a DIY type of storyline, but with the women, with Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell, instead of just the guys, obviously the prior DIY, which was Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa. So I just found this whole thing interesting. Really like what they're doing with Indy Hartwell. Again, Indy, um, Zoe Stark, and Cora Jade absolutely crushed it on this episode. For me, they were maybe the MVPs just because they actually had deep character development. And it's another great example of how much time NXT gives to the women. We can praise AEW for having two full women segments on TV, one a match that kind of didn't matter. And then of course, the really good face-to-face. But you look at NXT and you're seeing multiple segments of character development, wrestling, all that type of stuff. And that is super interesting. Uh, Thea Hale, speaking of women, went wild backstage wanting to attack Charlie Dempsey for Andre Chase after he beat him down last week. Duke Hudson was wearing Chase U gear. He said last week was a teachable moment and he wants to be out there to support not only Chase, but all of Chase U and he will not get involved this time because he's learned his lesson. Hudson matched her energy with Chase following suit and they all went out to the ring. So we had Chase against Dempsey. Dempsey was technical throughout. Chase told Hudson not to push the bottom rope towards him when he was trying to escape a submission. So Duke instead saw Chase struggling, took the white towel from Hale and threw it in the ring, throwing in the white towel to end the match. This now lends further credence, in my opinion, 
to the suspicion I had last week that Hudson is just a mole in Chase U. And that's a pretty interesting booking if that's what they're doing. One thing I was trying to figure out is why is Hale so energetic? Like, I know she's young, she's 18 years old. So there's youthful exuberance, but she's wild. Like she's like a rabid Wolverine or a Tasmanian devil. Is she hopped up on energy drinks? Nuts, how crazy and wild she gets. They probably need to explain that because it's a little nonsensical that someone is just naturally like that. Show her chugging energy drinks, do anything. Just tell me why this woman is this rabid. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, Hank Walker fought Stax Lorenzo. Stax was up early. Hank caught a boot and tore him down. Stax then thumbed his eye and hit a stomp-like move, but with his knee for the win. It's too short to really have a take. Stax can go in the ring. Good spot for him. Kiana James and her assistant visited Fallon Henley's family bar. Brooks Jensen obviously flirted with both of them. Henley turned down her original and final offers and then kicked Kiana James out of the bar. The acting was poor. The comedy wasn't funny. It was just a total bore of a segment. Donovan Dijak said his slate has been wiped clean and he's focused on getting the world to play by his rules and acknowledge his form of justice. There was again fire imagery. The T-bar mask was thrown into the flames again. It seemed like they were advancing past this last week with like the tape recorder bit. So to go back to this was kind of strange. We all know it's Dijak. Maybe open it up a bit, be a little bit less ambiguous. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just kind of whatever. Uh, Scripps infiltrated the actual performance center with words lit up on the screens. It said, my name is written on the walls. My voice sounds through the halls and soon I'll be in NXT to watch the whole thing fall. Pain is truly among thee. Imagine what will happen has happened as it was always meant to be. Sincerely, Scripps. There's still really not much to take from this, but at least it was different than the voicemails. My assumption again is that this is more of a poet character than something like nefarious. I also think it's gonna be an individual and not a group. By never using any gender pronouns, it may be a situation where people expect a man, but it's actually a woman. But I don't really know. I maintain that Scripps is a really bad wrestling name. Uh, A poet is not really a good gimmick, but it's tough to come to any judgment before we actually see what happens. So this remains a wait and see. I don't know when we're gonna get it. My assumption is it's either next week or the week after, and then they build into like an initial match and feud for NXT deadline but we'll find out. Speaking of NXT deadline, there was a video promo with a 25 minute clock and a two minute clock that were part of the animation. It was announced after this aired that Shawn Michaels would make a statement next week about NXT deadline. And it seems to be like it's gonna be a major announcement. This whole thing to me seems like it's gonna be a new type of gimmick match. And you know, I guess we're gonna find out next week, but the get the graphics and the promotion of this so far, it's been really intriguing. Everything's looked really sharp. And one thing that we haven't really gotten in wrestling recently is the introduction of a new gimmick match. Like, yes, you can say in AEW, the casino versions of their matches are different because people come to the ring in waves. Sure, but it's still a ladder match or a battle royal. Uh, War games, blood and guts, we've seen those before, right? So we haven't actually seen something truly new and inventive. And I'm not saying that this will be. Maybe this is a takeoff in some ways of the casino stuff. I don't know, but I'm very, very curious to see what they do here. Um, The last match invention that we can possibly give partial credit for, I'm just realizing this now, it's the fight pit. And now you could say that was, of course, a takeoff of the lion's den, which WWE did back in the day. Absolutely it was, no question about it. 
But the fight pit had some elements, kind of like a casino battle royal, that were new and inventive, including the scaffolding on top and the way that it's presented. So I'm just very curious to see what NXT's come up with here. I'm actually really excited about the announcement next week, and I'm now anticipating NXT deadline even more than I already was. So it's a hit so far, but again, just like with scripts, just like with DiJack, we need to actually see what it is before we fully judge it. So that is it this week from AEW and NXT, a loaded show really, talking about a lot of interesting developments across both brands. A reminder that one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel will be the AEW full gear ultimate preview. We will also likely talk about NXT on that show. There's a chance that we do a separate NXT episode that seems to have worked occasionally when we do something like that. Um, that way we just don't jam everything in one episode and the AEW stuff doesn't like, you know, push the NXT stuff to the end or the NXT stuff in front doesn't kind of infiltrate the AEW Ultimate Preview. It depends on my time in the week. We'll do possibly two separate shows, but one way or another on Thursday, you're going to get your AEW Full Gear Ultimate Preview and a reminder that once the pay-per-view goes off the air over the weekend, you will get AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis. It's going to be a loaded minimum three, maybe four episode week on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And also, please do not forget, our next show this coming Tuesday will be a WWE episode breaking down everything across SmackDown and Raw. On the way out, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, live shows on Twitter spaces, all the things I talked about earlier. And do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And on Apple, leave five-star written reviews. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Tell them why they should subscribe. And we will read those five-star written reviews right here live on the podcast. Thank you all once again for joining me, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, on the latest edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Allow me to now sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.